Welcome to Word Processing, a resource of Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Listen in as we discuss issues of God, His Word, and His people. Well, hello everyone, and welcome to another edition of Word Processing. Uh, My name is Andrew. I'm here with Josiah. Josiah, it's been a couple weeks since uh, you and I have been back together, but we are here to discuss the Word of God and more specifically a sermon that you've preached just this past Sunday here at Oak Ridge Bible Chapel. Uh, we are back after a few weeks of break in the book of Matthew. Um, today, specifically, we are going to be talking about a passage um, in Matthew chapter 8 from verses 23 uh, all the way to chapter 9, verse 8. And really, this is, as you pointed out before, the second in a set of three trios of miracles in this section of Matthew. So you pointed out when we got to the first one, there's, you know, three miracles and then a passage on discipleship and then three miracles, another passage, and then another three miracles, which we'll get to, I'm sure, in a couple of weeks. But this is the second in the set of, of miracles. I think it's really easy to look at passages of scripture that are similar and to end up wanting to draw the same conclusions from them. But you were really intentional here, and I mean, it's hard not to be when the Word of God is specific here, but this was not the same at all as the last Sermon on Miracles. In fact, you did not even just break up, as I typically would go to in my head, preparing to preach something like this, would think, let's just talk about each miracle, talk about what each one meant, and, and go forward from there. But you did something a bit different and showed us kind of three threads that followed through these three different miracles. Just I'm wondering if you can just start by quickly reminding us what were the three miracles and what are these three sort of threads that you, or themes, if you will, that you brought about that kind of go through these miracles? Sure. Backing up for a second, just to talk about the structure of chapters eight and nine, like sure. you mentioned, how there's three sets of miracles uh, separated by these excursus or discussions on discipleship and how the whole, as we mentioned on Sunday and a couple Sundays before that as well, the whole is used by Matthew to demonstrate Jesus's authority and power hmm. to bring about what he's been promising to do up until this point. Sure. And so as a whole, they do kind of have one purpose. Chapters 8 and 9 are to demonstrate the authority of this Messiah, that he can bring about the kingdom that he's promising mm-hmm. to Israel. Now, when you get down into the weeds and into the trees of this forest, you see that these sets of miracles are different, although they are have this same overarching theme of demonstrating Christ's power and his authority. They are different, and Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is very intentional about including each and every one of them and selecting mm-hmm. them and arranging them, and they have a purpose. And so as we study the Bible, we want to pay attention to the uniqueness of each of the three sets, but also the uniqueness of each miracle, each miraculous sign, because those are all intentional, and they give us clues and hints as to what the biblical author and the Holy Spirit wants us to do in response. And so that's that's why they're different a little bit. And I think that's a really important precursor that we remember, especially when looking at the different gospel accounts as well, because each gospel writer included different accounts and different miracles and different mm-hmm. things. And sometimes people say, well, how come this one didn't talk about this thing or this one didn't talk about this thing? Well, you just said it. They have a purpose inspired by the Holy Spirit in what they are trying to accomplish. Yeah. In fact, you may notice when I teach or preach, I am very wary of pulling in information from another gospel account. Some teachers and preachers like to do that to fill out the story. They may say things like, now in Luke's account, he adds this little detail that Matthew leaves out. Or in Mark's account, they add this detail. And Mm -hmm. they kind of try to 
create this composite picture of Jesus' life and ministry. And I think there's a place for that. But when it comes to preaching for the purpose of application for God's people, I think Matthew left whatever that is out for a reason. He didn't include that for a reason. And to import from another gospel account, to me, is a bit of an attack on the sufficiency of Scripture, to be honest. Wow, yeah. That Matthew is arranging things, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for a specific purpose. And so I don't feel the need to go outside of Matthew's section or his pericope to, to bring clarity from other gospel accounts or other passages. Now, we can use other passages to illustrate or to show where prophecy was filled and all sorts of things. So this isn't a blanket statement. I just am very cautious to do that because I think Matthew is doing something very specific. So it's best to just stick to what he has said and and leave out what he has not said Mm because he left it out for a purpose. Hmm. Now, your question was about these three threads that ran through this specific section and this middle group of, of three miracles. Well, I highlighted three threads that ran through all three, and they were, as you mentioned, fallenness, fear, and then the fix for this fear. Mm -hmm. Now, fallenness, as you go through these miracles, there's a miracle of Jesus calming the storm, and I pointed out that he rebukes the wind and the waves, and that word is always used in the Bible as a corrective to evil or perceived evil. And so here we have Jesus rebuking creation that is thrashing about and threatening the lives of the disciples, or so they thought. Mm -hmm. And so there's the fallenness of creation. There's the fallenness of the angels, the fallen angels or demons in the next scene where Jesus casts out these demons and heals really or delivers these demoniacs, these people who are possessed by demons. And so there's Jesus confronted with fallen creation, fallen angels. Then finally in the third scene, there's uh, fallen humanity when a paralytic is brought to him. And so we see the physical effects of sin in his paralysis. But Jesus also pinpoints something much deeper where he forgives the man's sins. And so he drills down past flesh and blood and the effects of sin physically to the effects of sin spiritually, which is all of our greatest need. Mm -hmm. And so he's confronted with fallenness at every step of the way. And it goes through every single... And Matthew makes a very clear point of, uh, of highlighting the fallenness in each account. And that paves the way for the second thread, which was the fear. In Mm -hmm. every scene of this section of scripture, there is fear around this fallenness. And let's be honest, that just makes sense to us. Mm -hmm. You know, if we're fearful, if there's things that I'm scared of, I can always trace that back to sin. Whether it's sin in creation, sin in the spiritual realm, in fallenness, in, in the spiritual realm of demons, or in my own life. There's sin that causes fear. And that's what we see here as well, the the disciples are afraid for their life because of the storm. Now, in the second scene, the people are scared of the demoniacs. The demoniacs are, or the demons are scared of Jesus and his mm-hmm. power. And then the, the people from the city come out and they're scared of Jesus as well. So there's fear all over that one. And then in the third scene, there's this little saying that Jesus says to the paralytic when he's brought before him. He says, he says take courage, son. Dispelling fear you know, mm-hmm. with a word. He's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what ails you. And so there's fear all the way through. I've literally never noticed that before you brought attention to it this week. It's always more focused on the story itself. Oh, yeah, this man was lame. He was brought by his friends or whatever. But to see this piece of take courage, like, it's so easy to just jump over. Yeah, and you would say, when you read through it, if you're reading slowly, I guess, and, and you're right, those things of this story are important. But i got to scratch my head and say, what's he scared of? Like, honestly, he's being brought his whole, well, we don't know how long, but he's been paralyzed. Mm-hmm. Um, he's aware of that. He's been brought by his friends, cared for by his friends before Jesus, who he thinks can heal him. And he's told to not fear. And you're saying, why? What's he have to be afraid of? Until you 
realize that fear has woven its way all the way through this pericope and all the way through this mm-hmm. middle section, you don't understand that that is a connecting thread that we wanted to pull on. And then finally, the third one was the fix. So how do we address the fear that is in response to the fallenness of this world? And I just pointed out that Jesus, not surprisingly, is at the center of every single one of these scenes where the disciples are scared because they haven't fully comprehended who Jesus is. In Mm -hmm. fact, they say, what is this man? Even the the storm, the weather obeys him. They don't fully comprehend his power and authority, although they've been privy to some pretty incredible displays so far. They still don't fully get it, and fear thrives there. The demons, they know exactly who Jesus is, and that's what scares them. But the people from the city, they don't know who Jesus is, and they're scared because of that. So there's a bit of a juxtaposition there, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's fear in response to that. But Jesus is at the center again. Who is he? He says, the, the son of God, they call him. They, they know exactly who he is and the power he mm-hmm. wields. And then in the last scene, Jesus himself says that he's the son of man. He has authority over sin on earth. And so he's declared himself. But again, in confusion about who he is, fear thrives. And so when we talk about the fix, it's all about Jesus. And that shouldn't surprise anyone. But I laid it out in three questions. So how do we fix this fear that is in reaction to fallen creation, angels, humanity. Mm-hmm. What's well, who is Jesus? What authority does he have? And in this case, he has authority over all of these things. Mm-hmm. And then finally, what promise has he made? And we know in this section of Matthew, he is building up, declaring that the kingdom is at hand, that he's offering the kingdom. And that kingdom is a place where there is no fallenness. Mm-hmm. There is no fallen angels. There is no fallen creation. There is no fallen humanity. And so he's giving them a sneak peek of what is to come. And so again, it's all about Jesus. He casts out fear. Perfect love casts out fear. He is perfect love. And so he is the remedy. He is the fix to fear. It's interesting. Just as I hear you talking, I'm confronted, I guess, with this reality that you made really clear, but I think it's hitting me in a bit of a different way today. The idea that all of our, anything we have to fear comes from fallenness, which is sin. It's, It's fear of a result of sin. And I, I just wonder sometimes, I wonder if that is part of the reason why so often in the Bible, it reminds us to fear not. It's not just, I think it's easy to associate and just say, oh, don't be afraid, don't be scared, but to really associate it with sin and realize that every time we are giving into fear, we are given into something that is a result of the fall directly. Yeah. Ob- objectively, there are things to fear. Mm-hmm creation, the storm that the disciples faced was more powerful than them. Yeah. The demons, more powerful than the people. Mm-hmm. Our sin nature, more powerful than us. We lose those fights 10 times out of 10. Mm-hmm. And so objectively for us, we like to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, that mm-hmm. we're more powerful than we actually are. These things are bigger than us. They're more powerful than us. But then Jesus comes along and he says, if you're in me and I in you, we're told that he that is in us is more powerful than he that is in the world. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason we can't fear. We, we don't have to fear. Sure. Left to ourselves, we should be afraid. Yeah. Totally, we should be afraid. We are outgunned, hilariously outgunned. Yeah. But Jesus comes along, he says, but with me, because of who I am, the authority I wield, and the promise I've made, you don't have to fear. But as people, we forget that. We forget who we're attached to. We forget who lives in us, and fear creeps in, understandably. Mm, what a great explanation. Now, one of the first topics that you addressed today and as well in your message was the idea of fallen creation. So that very first miracle, you know, the the storm coming through. Maybe it's just me, but I feel like the idea of fallen creation is somewhat of an uncommon topic. And even when it is discussed, it's generally just about humanity. So you brought up that point of fallen humanity. You know, the result of sin is that this man is paralyzed. I think that is something that we think about quite, quite often, but 
how often do we talk about in the church the idea that creation itself outside of humanity mm-hmm. bears marks of the fall so this crazy storm and the weather and and things like that mm-hmm. i wonder if you can maybe just because we don't talk about it a lot talk about that a bit more what is the result of creation itself being fallen how do we see that in our world and our lives um why does it matter <laughs> Yeah, this deserves a far greater treatment than we'll give here. Sure. But maybe a topic for another day. Maybe, but when you more. go back to Genesis chapter 3 and sin enters the world for the first time, its effects are catastrophic. It fractures everything, every relationship. Certainly our relationship with between humans and God is fractured. Mm-hmm. Our relationship between human to human is fractured. Human relationship to creation is fractured. Creation's relationship with itself is fractured. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3... Verses uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, God is doling out or explaining the consequences of the disobedience. And he says that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman. So there's some, uh, even the the spiritual aspect of of fallen angels uh, with humanity. There's uh, tension there as there should be. And he says to the woman, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. Mm -hmm. In pain, you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. There's a tension between humanity. There's tension that was not there before. Then he said to Adam, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, which I commanded of you saying, you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it. All the days of your life, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And so we see that there's this, fallenness even in creation. And then Paul, no doubt with this text in mind in Romans 8, he talks about how creation groans, Mm -hmm. groans under the curse of sin, but also aches to be redeemed, aches to be restored as Mm. we know what will happen in the eschaton, in the end, right? And so the story of scripture is one of perfect creation, fallen, marred, broken, aching for restoration that will certainly come. What effects does that have today? Well, you think of everything that's wrong with our creation, Mm-hmm. Everything that's wrong with it is a result of sin. Natural disasters, famine. Uh, we lived in a farming community for a while. How they have to toil over the earth and, and bad years and good years and the, all of that. Imagine being a farmer on the new heavens and new earth mm-hmm. when you don't have to toil at all. It just grows. There's no opposition there. So everything that people look around the world and say, this world is not great. There's things about this world that are broken. Exactly. That's very biblical. Whether they believe in the Bible or not, whether they believe in the God of the Bible or not, they are putting their finger on the pulse of a very real theological, very real theological teaching, like mm-hmm. which is that creation has fallen. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what time to realize this more than ever right now, the result of a pandemic that is, you know, had its effect on our world in so many different ways, mm-hmm. I mean, is a direct result of this yep. exact thing. Viruses existing, mm-hmm. illness existing. Um, death existing, pain, suffering, all these, fear. Mm-hmm. I can see what you mean, though. Like, we talk about fallen humanity a lot in the church, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Very personal mm-hmm. in that case. We talk about fallen angels and the demonic once in a while, although I'm not sure in our circles anyway we give enough attention to it. Mm-hmm. But we understand that it's there, and most Christians sure. would deny that. But I think you're right. That discussion over the fallenness of creation is probably more backburner than it should be. I think even just like the the phrases that we use in our vernacular, the idea of, well, that's just the way it is, or that's just the way the world works, or life's not fair. Like all of these kind of commonplace life lessons, perhaps, that we learn at some point in our childhood, or maybe later on in our adulthood, all comes down to a result of a fallen creation. Well, you mentioned 
uh, in the second miracle, how the demoniacs accused Jesus of inappropriate timing. You know, the idea of you, well, they say right here in the text, you come here to torment us before the time, question mark. They're mm-hmm. asking him, like, what are you doing here? This is not the right time for this. <laughs> but something, I don't remember the exact way you phrased on Sunday, but you followed up with a little bit of a gut punch where you mentioned how often our own inquiries of Christ can marry, maybe carry a similar accusation, you know? Mm-hmm. God, why aren't you helping me right now? Isn't it time that you stop this? God, don't you see what's going on in this world? Um, I think these are questions that we've all had in our hearts at some point, maybe, whether verbalized or not. But I'm wondering, I guess, what I want to do here is make sure that we're not unnecessarily or unhelpfully adding guilt on ourselves, but also realizing the reality of sin. And so I guess I, I want to ask the question, of, is there a difference? I know there is, but what is the difference between doing what scripture says, bring your requests and petitions before God, doing what David does and crying out to God with our, our feelings and our emotions versus on the flip side, acting as though we know better or thinking that we know better than God or accusing him of inappropriate timing as the demons do. Yeah, it's a balancing act, I think. And to fall off on either side is to succumb to the sin of pride and unbelief. Hmm. To bring requests to God and demand our own timeline is obviously prideful. Mm -hmm. It's putting ourselves above God, whether we mean to or not. It's saying that we know better Mm -hmm. that if I was God, here's what I would do. Uh, And that is just simply pride. We're saying that we are above God, his wisdom, his power, his plan, his purposes. That's unbelief. Mm -hmm. It's just basically saying that I don't believe that God is who he has revealed himself to be. That's pride. Now, to come and fall off on the other side, to maybe back off and say, well, then I just won't pray, is also prideful. Mm -hmm. Because then it is not only an act of disobedience because we're called and invited to, to pray to God, but it's also a declaration that we don't need his help. And so either side of this balance beam is a chasm of sinful pride and unbelief, mm. and we want to avoid both. And so we know that the Christian life is, is a life of faith, right? We walk by faith, not by sight. That's very clear. We trust that the God who knows what's best will respond to prayer in a manner that is best for us. That's what we have to walk mm-hmm. by. And why do we say that? Because he said that he'll do it. He's done it countless times in the past, yep. and we're not special enough to break the pattern. God is very trustworthy, and so I go to him in prayer with expectation and say, Lord, I need this, I need you, I need your help, I need your power, but I trust you with whatever the response will be. Your timing is perfect. It's, it's a cry of faith. It's the cry of the psalmist oftentimes who say, but I trust you, Lord. I, I need you right now, and I don't know why you're waiting, but I'm going to trust you that your timing is better. Mm-hmm. You're right. It is dangerous on both sides. Pride and arrogance can get in the way, and I think what I hear you saying is a lot of it comes down to the tone with which or our intention behind how we're approaching it. If we're approaching it from a direction of, I want you, God, to do this thing because I don't know where else to turn versus, God, you need to. I'm demanding of you that you act in this way mm-hmm. that I think and believe is best mm-hmm. um, is perhaps a bit of a difference there. Again, are we asking in faith? Are we asking in pride? Mm-hmm. I think we can call out to God with intensity in faith. Mm -hmm. I think we can. The Lord knows, but we come before him and just say, Lord, with everything that I am, I need you to come through on this issue. I need you. Without you coming through, 
I don't know how I will survive. I don't know how I will continue. I think my faith will be shipwrecked. I think this relationship will be toast. Whatever the case may be, he knows those things. We lay them before him. At that moment, we are worshiping him, Mm -hmm. saying he's worthy of these prayers. He's worthy of this trust. He's worthy of of this uh, dependence being laid at his feet. And at the same time, we are also saying that I know that I have such a sliver view Mm -hmm. of eternity. I don't know what's best. From my perspective, as limited as it is, I'm going to come to you with everything I've got, knowing that I'm very limited in what I can see and you are not. Hmm. I just have to come before you and then lay it at your feet and say, your will be done. Because I know it's the best thing for me, the best thing for the relationship, the best thing for whatever. I'm going to trust you with it. Mm -hmm. It's a tough thing. Yeah. Yeah, but it requires, again, a a robust view of who we are, a robust view of who God is, a robust view of all of these things. Mm -hmm. It's difficult. So to take that thread then and to follow it up to kind of our conclusion today, as you said before, the the solution or the fix to the problem of fear or, or the problem of pride, I'd say in this case as well, is knowing who Jesus is, the authority he has, and the promise he's made. Or you said quite simply, faith. I'll be talking about faith a lot. What are some ways as we kind of end today, this is maybe the, the simplest but also the most complicated question. Yeah. Really practically, what are some ways that we can grow in faith that combats fear? Because it's easy to say faith is a solution or just have faith, but I think it can be harder practically to figure out what that actually looks like in the day-to-day. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll phrase it in a personal way and, and just say, like, what are some ways that if you find yourself wrestling with fear that you practically engage with putting your faith in, in front of that? How does someone get over the fear of jumping out of an airplane with a parachute? That is, if nothing else, a leap of faith. How do they get over that? Well, Mm -hmm. they may do a number of things. They may have done it before in the past. They may talk to people who have done it in the past. Mm -hmm. They may read the resume of the pilot or the Yelp reviews. I don't know if they still have those. Yelp? I don't know. The Yelp reviews <laughs> of the question. of the skydiving school. They may read the manual of the airplane, of the parachute. They may do all of this research. And the more they do, the more comfortable they are, the more fearless they become when they're up in that plane and take that jump. They can equip themselves to make that ultimately a leap of faith still. No matter what, it's still a it leap still of faith. Is, You're yeah. still jumping, right? We do the same with our relationship with Christ. Is he worthy of trust? What can I do to increase my faith in him? Mm. It's still going to be a leap of faith. I'm still going to walk by faith, but what can I do? Well, I can talk to other Christians. Have they walked by faith? What was it like? Where did it fail? Where did they come short? I can read the word and know this Christ that I'm trusting. His resume is far greater than any pilot, any flight school, any any uh, skydiving school. I can get to know him more. I spend time with him. I talk to him. I pray. There's so many things that we can do to increase our level of faith before we jump. There's always a jump, always a jump. Um, But Christ has never dropped anyone. But I think that's, when we talk about walking in faith instead of fear, I am going to get to know the one I'm trusting. And when these, the fallenness of this world confronts me and I am tempted to respond in fear, seeing that those things are stronger than me. Mm-hmm. They will overwhelm me. I have to be able to fall back on the reality of my Savior, that he's never left me da- let me down, and that I'm in him, and the promise that's coming through, and the authority he has. The authority is so much bigger than anything that can prompt fear in me. And I have to walk by faith, trusting him. That's really what it comes down to, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Like we grow in our understanding of him, that we can walk with confidence. 
What a great illustration. Sometimes we look for a more complicated explanation than yeah. that. And I mentioned, I think, on Sunday that it is a bit of a Sunday school imperative, a mm -hmm. Sunday school lesson at the end. You know, instead of being afraid, have faith. Instead of fear, don't fear the fallenness, have trust faith Jesus. in Christ. Trust Jesus. You're like, oh, I've heard that a million times. We need to hear it a million times. Yeah. You know, we need to be prompted to trust Christ and know that he is trustworthy and that nothing that prompts fear in us, nothing in this fallen world can touch us in the ways that are important if we're in Christ. And just walk in that reality. This is not a, a call to be bad stewards and foolish in this world Definitely. and to walk into reckless. oncoming traffic and, yep. yeah, and to be reckless. No, of course not. We want to be good stewards of the time and, and everything that we have. But we can walk with a confident knowledge of who our Savior is, mm -hmm. the power he wields, and the promise that he's made that we are sure to inherit. And those things can, as we walk in them, as we understand that they are realities now and forever, it loosens the grip of fear in our life. And I think what you just said there too is if we do not walk in the confidence of those things, we need to do something to fix that. And we have plenty available to us. As you said, in God's word helps us to know him better. Talking to other Christians can help us to know him better and to trust him more. Realizing that I think I think sometimes as much as we also try and complicate it, sometimes we try and maybe oversimplify it in the opposite way of just saying, you know, well, it just takes faith and I don't have faith. Yeah. It just I just got to trust and I don't trust. Yeah. Instead of saying, well, okay, then what do you do about that? How can we how can we fix that? Yeah. Yeah, faith is not based on nothing. Yeah. It's not wishful thinking. Sure. In my mind, I have a storage unit of experiences that I keep at the ready mm -hmm. of times that God has come through very clearly in my life. Yep. And when I'm facing something that is striking fear in my heart, I just pull out one of those things and I review it. Yep. You know, I know that God has come through in my life. And then I can add to that storage unit other people's experiences yep. and the experiences of saints gone past, the cloud of witnesses mm -hmm. that we're told in scripture. It's saying that this can be done. And I add these to my storage unit in my head and I pull them out often and they dispel fear because I know the God that I'm following. And so we just need to be intentional about stockpiling reasons to believe and reasons to walk in faith. And the more we understand, again, Jesus is who he said he is yep. and can do what he claimed to do and will do what he's promised to do. I mean, just like Paul said, honestly, what can you do to me? Mm -hmm. What can this world do to me? Mm -hmm. Nothing. I mean, Christ, obviously it could do things to him. He was whipped. He was shipwrecked, all of those terrible things. But at the end of the day, he said, what can you do to me? I mean, I go home to be with the Lord if I die. If not, I'm going to serve him here to live as Christ, to die as gain. Honestly, I am free from fear. Mm -hmm. I want to be like that. Yeah, don't we all? Well, on that note, we'll wrap up today, Josiah. For all of you listeners, I just want you to be encouraged today. I know this is a difficult topic, something that we all deal with at times. And my encouragement for, for all of us, myself and Josiah included, is that we would, we would walk in this freedom that we have, this faith that we have, um, to be freed from fear. And uh, I pray that this week you would be able to, to stockpile those things in your life that point to God's faithfulness and, and would be able to rely on that more. Uh, until next time, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We hope you are encouraged and learned something new. Visit oakridgebiblechapel.org to listen to sermons and for more information.